You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Monster House presents. This episode deals with themes of death and suicide. If you're feeling desperate and having suicidal thoughts, please get help immediately. Counselors are standing by. Just dial 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. I'll also include that number in the show notes. Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. The funeral is the period awaiting at the end of all our sentences. And while many of us have beliefs about life after death or reincarnation, for most of the English-speaking world, the expectation is that our earthly remains will be interred, and that will be that. But in a small cemetery in Barbados, there was a tomb whose confined occupants behaved in a way that was less sepulchral and more peculiar. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. There's a whole category of crime and detective stories called locked door mysteries. Clever writers come up with outlandishly frustrating scenarios where it's obvious nobody could have gotten in to commit the crime, which is often murder. Yet it turns out there was some way for the crime to have been achieved. One of the most fun aspects to researching allegedly paranormal mysteries is trying to figure out if there was some natural explanation. In the case of the moving coffins of Barbados, many have tried to get to the bottom of this mystery. And I'll tell you right now, like a lot of the cases we look at on the show, it's impossible to know for sure with certitude what actually happened. 
if anything. But my co-host Dr. Karen Stolzno and her husband Matt Baxter have done some digging of their own into this strange case and will spend the next hour and a half or so discussing their findings. I have to confess, I feel like I'm failing you as a host in this introduction. This is a story that has genuinely creeped out thousands and thousands of people over the decades. For some reason, I have a hard time trying to make it sound spooky. It is a really good campfire story. The story has people trying to figure out why these coffins are moving around, and it has grave openings, and funerals, and burials, and legends... And as each explanation is tried out, it always comes back to what researcher Norval Rogers would have called ghosts. Ghost! Let's get out of here. So, let's put on something light and tropical. Don't forget your suntan lotion and mosquito spray. Let's grab your notepad and your magnifying glass. It's time to go looking into a graveyard mystery in Barbados. Monster dog. Oh, yeah, so I'm excited. Uh, we're, you've been doing some original research. Yes, into a, a, a story that I didn't think had much more to it, but apparently it does. So we, we have, uh, we're joined by Matt Baxter again, uh, just as a, I guess, a third brain to be able to, to talk about this. And, uh, well, two and, and a half. So- <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, here we are, two and a half men says. What? <laughs> <laughs> So we're, we're going to talk about the so-called moving chase coffins of Barbados. So I think that you were both familiar with this story prior to us deciding to do a, a show on this. And I can't even remember where I re- originally uh, heard about this story. I think I've just read it in so many books over the years. I have forgotten the, the first source that I came across it in. How about you guys? So I, I I know I've known about this story for at least a decade from podcasts, but when you brought it up as a topic, I had grave concerns. Oh. There we go. <laughs> Get that out of your system. <laughs> and I, I never heard of it before. Oh, wow. Okay. Is that real? I mean, real? actually, really, yeah. The first time I heard about it was from Karen. Oh, cool. Uh, and, I mean, the thing is, is there's so many of uh, – these kinds of, of legends out there that, um, you know, it's, it's hard to keep up on all of them. And well, that's true. I think a lot of what I have looked into have been things that I could physically go to. And since I didn't have any plans previously to rush off to Barbados, which I do now, um, <laughs> I hadn't paid too much attention. So I'd probably heard about it, but just didn't give it any credence. Um, so now. I'm, well, I'm all all ready to pack my bags. Well, just in case, in case, you know, I'm sure you're going to go over all this real soon. But just quickly say that for someone who's like looked into it very lightly in the past, I didn't realize sort of the imminent personages who had opined on this topic. I mean, it really surprised me, uh, like to see. And I, I know it's part of our notes, but that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle himself had like <laughs> had sort of looked into the matter and I'm, I'm going to try not to say dug into, I'm just going to, just, yeah. like, but, the, but yeah, well, you tried. Yeah, I did. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, um, I mean, this has got to be one of the most popular of these sort of cemetery graveyard legends though, honestly, uh, I don't know if there's like a top list or if anybody's out there who's like a qualified tomb raider, but I think if someone were rating this, it would be very high on the list. Yeah, well, I think I'd known about this story since I was a child. And uh, I think one of the first 
things I'd seen were the, the pictures, the sketches of the, the coffins in the vault. But yeah. I thought we'd begin with some of the, the folklore anyway, as we usually like to, and then to, to come in with some, some theories and some explanations and, and discussion about the topic. Sounds good. Yeah, because I think we're like three and a half minutes in and we haven't actually explained what's going on. So let's let's hit it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I, it's, it's a very involved story and there are multiple iterations of the story as well. And I thought we'd go with the most basic version. And this surrounds the infamous Chase Vault and it's it's they're being referred to as the moving or the restless coffins in which coffins were believed to have moved mysteriously about in a sealed vault. And these events took place at the Christchurch Parish, uh, Parish Cemetery in a place called Oystens, which is a coastal area in uh, southern Barbados. So the vault was said to be constructed by a fellow named James Elliot in 1724, but apparently he never actually used the vault. And the, the first occupant of the vault uh, wasn't placed in there until 1807. And this now, I don't woman... think I've ever heard, I'm sorry, I don't think I've ever heard in any of this, uh, uh, you know, the, the podcasts and the, the YouTube videos and the articles, I don't think I've heard anyone actually question why wasn't it used? Was mm -hmm. there a problem with it that got lost to, you know, the ages? And, uh, you know, there, there was something, you know, there was a good reason for it to not be used whether mm. paranormal or, or regular, and it's just never commented on. No one's commented on this. I do think it's suspicious because that's a gap of about 70 years odd. And Well, maybe it's... no one died in 70 years. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's possible. Yeah. That is weird. But yeah. it is, uh, I mean, these vaults were incredibly expensive to build and only owned by the most rich people, so I don't know why you would not use it for that period of time. But anyway, so it wasn't until July 31st in 1807 that the first occupant was placed in the vault and uh, was a lady by the name of Thomasina Goddard, apparently. And she was buried in there in a, a wooden coffin. Okay. And then several months later, the vault was purchased by uh, a man by the name of the Honourable Colonel Thomas Chase. And he was apparently a plantation owner with a reputation for being a very cruel master towards his slaves and even his own family. So he was to use the vault very soon thereafter in February 1808, and unfortunately his two-year-old daughter Mary died. So she was placed in a lead coffin and was interred in the vault. You know, I, I always hear that stated that he was a cruel master, and I, I don't know that, I guess in the modern terms, I don't, it's like, well, would, I mean, if he was a, good and friendly master he's still a slave master but i was exactly <laughs> i don't think he could yeah I, it's, it's a weird it's a detail I, a, a cruel master i mean yeah. it's yeah i don't think you could have a kind master um when it comes to enslaving people well, is, is, i guess my what i'm what i'm wondering is does does that start out at the beginning that this narrative already has a there's a punitive Bad. side to the story like the story like whatever's happening is somehow related to him being a cruel master and that that's a possibility that we can discuss later on, but cool. it, it is always in, enforced when telling the story that he was a uh, a, a slave owner and, and was brutal. Yeah. Well, I also know it's common for children to die during these times, but do we have any idea of what uh, his daughter died of at two years old? I'm just not sure. As you say, mortality rates were high at that time, uh, so the 
there really aren't any details about Mary. However, there are details about another daughter of his who died four years later. Okay. And so that was his uh, teenage daughter, Dorcas. She died 1812 and was uh, was buried in, in July of that year. So legend has it that she starved herself to death to avoid her father's cruelty. So she was also placed in a lead coffin and deposited into the Chase family vault. Can I just say that I knew a lady in college named Dorcas, and this is the only second person I've encountered in my life named Dorcas? <laughs> I think it was quite a popular Irish name at the time. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've read other stories where uh, Dorcas was a a name of a character, but it's certainly not a popular name today. It's one of those very old-fashioned sounding names today. Yeah. But uh, so Thomas Chase himself died rather suspiciously in August 1812, so one month after Dorcas died. And it was said that he died by his own hand so that he committed suicide. Hmm. And he was also placed in a heavy lead coffin. And this is where the story gets interesting. So it sounds like a lot of repetition throughout this story. But at this point, when the vault was open to receive him, the resident coffins were found in complete disarray. So Thomasina Goddard, the first person to be interred into the vault, her coffin was overturned. And the infant Mary, her tiny coffin had been flung against the wall and was standing upright. And Dorcas's coffin was also tossed about. So... It was theorized that the vault had been broken into by vandals or by grave robbers. Mm. So the coffins were stacked neatly and a half-ton marble slab was placed over the entrance to deter robbers. Wow. So so it sounds like the coffins were all moved, but it, I, I haven't read where they might have been cracked open or anything like that. Is that – have you? It was always just moved. When I and was that's from- a – that's a good point, and we'll get into that in a second. But, yes, I mean, we, we normally typically hear about them being thrown about or moved. We don't necessarily hear of an arm sticking out. Right, right, like right, that. exactly, yeah. Um, so the vault wasn't opened again until four years later, and now this was September 1816, and this was to take the coffin of yet another infant. In some stories, it said that he's 11 years old, uh, but it's a Charles or a Samuel Brewster Ames. And when the marble slab was moved, the coffins were again found to be in a state of complete confusion. And they were scattered about the vaults. So at this point, it was believed that the, the vault had been broken into by uh, enslaved people or former enslaved people who were seeking revenge on the cruel Thomas Chase. So again, the coffins were restacked neatly and the vault was walled up. Uh, this was back when they used to blame crimes on people of lower economic means and uh, and maybe people who weren't like powerful in society, not like it our enlightened times today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so again, the the next time the vault was opened was during November eighteen sixteen, and this was for another Samuel Brewster. And so we're starting to see different names. So it's said that this Samuel Brewster might have been a relative of Thomas Chase's. And when they opened the vault, the coffins were again in this complete state of disarray. And this time, Thomasina's wooden coffin, so all the other coffins were made of lead, very heavy. Yeah. But the wooden coffin was destroyed completely and it had been thrown violently against the wall and it had to be repaired with wire. But again, there's no mention of whether they were opened up and the, the bodies had fallen out or, or anything like that. Just no, We don't get any specifics with these kinds of stories you have to wonder uh, with you know the the amount of money 
that this family seemed to have had, why wouldn't they donate to just get her a new coffin instead of wrapping it up with wire? That's a good point. Disrespectful, but you know, it's a little strange. Seems like somebody would have stepped forward and said, "You know what? She needs a new coffin." Well, yeah, but, uh, it makes me, makes you wonder if they just mean it was wired shut and that story got muted or mutated somehow. There's a lot of mutation. Here. Or actually, actually, let me just back off of that because I think uh, I have lots of questions about where the whole the whole thing. So we'll we'll get into that. Right. Yeah. So the other leaden coffins were repositioned and tossed about the vault. And the attendees at this uh, this burial checked for signs of forced entry. They thought there must have been an intruder. Uh, but there were also new theories that there was a supernatural force that was believed to have moved the coffins, possibly poltergeists. I mean, this is a lot of violence, a lot of uh, you know, poltergeist-like activity. So yet again, the coffins were restacked neatly and the vault resealed. And so now the final person to be placed into the vault was a Thomasin, so not Thomasina, but a Thomasin Clark in July of 1819. So by this point, the vault was infamous across the island and a throng of people had gathered to witness the event. Even the governor of Barbados, whose name was Lord Cumbermere, attended the funeral with several other dignitaries present as well. And as anticipated, the vault was in a, in, in a shambles. Every coffin had been thrown about was topsy-turvy and so they suspected that someone had secret access to the vault and so they took a good look around but there were no signs of entry nothing seemed to be amiss so again there was this belief that maybe no human hand could possibly have done this Mm -hmm. so the coffins were returned to their original positions and a sketch was made of the neatly stacked coffins in the vault and uh, to to further investigate this some, as they say, fine white sand was scattered on the floor in the hopes of catching the footprints of intruders. And the governor and other dignitaries who were present impressed their seals into the wet cement on the slab. And the party left the scene convinced that no one could possibly gain entry into the vault. So again, this was July 1819. And it was in April of 1820. So the following year that Lord Cumbermere decided to open the vault. Now in one uh, story that, that we came across, it seems like there someone had heard a sound coming from within the vault the night before. Probably like a, a barking sound from, from all these seals. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although, yeah, disembodied cries or something like that. Mm, so someone mm. heard a, a weird sound coming from the vault in the cemetery. So I think that they'd been very eager to open the, the vault up anyway. And uh, so this was their excuse. And when the party arrived at the vault, the seals were undisturbed. And the sand was completely undisturbed as well when they opened the the vault up. But mysteriously, all of the coffins had moved again. Mm, mm. So, in fact, Thomas Chase's coffin was standing on end and was blocking the entry to the vault. So everyone was really freaked out. They made another sketch of the chaotic scene and in frustration and fear, the governor just ordered all of the coffins to be removed and buried somewhere else within the cemetery. And the chase vault was left open and unsealed and it was never used again. So that's the basic story. Wow. Now the, the variations in the story um, are, are fairly minor, really. Uh, it's uh, 
it's kind of interesting, you know, that you get, you know, just little little bits here and there that are different. Like sometimes you hear that there's a, there's a sound within the vault that prompts them to open it, and other times there's no sound. And uh, you know, the different ages of some of the the people that were buried there. Um, yep. And the thing is, is, is you know, Karen, you talked about the sketch, the sketches that were made of the last two openings. Mm-hmm. And I, I looked at those sketches, and I have a couple of problems with them. Um, but one of the first things I noticed is that the uh, the original occupant was not sketched. And that's very mysterious. Yeah. Uh, you, I, I don't know how to account for that. I mean, there are other sketches which were made too, but apparently those weren't made at the time, and it's difficult to really trace when they were made. So we can put yeah, these sketches just... in the show notes? Uh, yes, yes. Cool. But there is no Thomasina Goddard. Interesting. Yeah. Just it's uh, and and uh, so that you know immediately brings into question uh, the uh, the validity of those sketches. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing is, you know, they talk about the size of the vault. Mm-hmm. You know, it's basically twelve by six feet, and uh, you know, if there was going to be seven coffins in there, that's um, pretty difficult to fit that many. Uh, much more, much less for them to actually have a coffin party in there. Uh, and move all over the <laughs> yeah. place. It doesn't well, yeah. seem. It was. I, don't know, I think it's it was strange. It was said that uh, I think Thomas Chase's coffin was carried by eight strong men, and so I think you'd have a lot of difficulty being able to place those coffins in there, and to also have other living people in there too. I think it would have really been impossible to to store that many coffins. Oh but, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's like if you know the area of the of the of the actual square footage inside the draw, you know, inside the, the, the tomb. And then, you know, mm-hmm. how, how many coffins there are. Of course, people do stack them. I mean, you know, I guess. Yeah, it, they're you know, stacked. Uh, yeah. You know, it was basically three, three coffins wide of the adult size coffins. And then the three smaller coffins were placed on top of them, but that's without Thomasina Goddard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So don't and know what happened. She vanished, I guess. You could, possibly have people theorize too that it was so her uh coffin was so destroyed at that point that they removed her but but that's not mentioned anywhere of course yeah i mean some of this the story has great detail and then there's glaring omissions at the same time mm-hmm. but i think we should so start talking about the the accounts of the story and the sources too so yeah. the vault was basically they stopped using it in 1820 and the first published story was uh, written by James Edward Alexander in a book called Transatlantic Sketches. This and whole story is kind of sketchy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Very transatlantic sketchy, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the, the story is unsourced. It was first published in 1833. And I think what's interesting is that this was some 13 years after the alleged events had taken place. So that's a long time for the, the story to uh, to morph and to, to be changed and to have details added or taken out. Uh, so I think that's quite some period of time. Then there's another retelling which appears in a book called The History of Barbados in 1844 by Sir Robert Herman Schomburg. And this version's written and signed by someone called J. Anderson Rector. And that is followed by uh, another synoptic version, which is written by a Thomas Harrison Audison DD from the parish of Christchurch, Barbados. And this story was signed by him 
but printed by a fellow named Mr. Robert Reese Jr. And it was published in a pamphlet called Death's Deeds in 1860. And interestingly, it turns out that both Jay Anderson and Thomas Harrison Audison are the same person. Really? So we'll be talking about him, yeah, a little bit later. And these two versions are different too. You've got the 1844 version, the 1860 version, and one omits the, the burial of the, the second infant, Samuel, but this one also includes a sketch of the coffins in the vault. Interesting. Oh, it gets at, better, though. But at this time, Barbados was still part of the British Empire, and so Lord Combermere did indeed exist and was governor of Barbados at the time from 1817 to 1820. So his full name and titles, Field Marshal Stapleton Cotton, first Viscount of Combermere. And I was getting confused because sometimes I'd hear Stapleton Cotton and sometimes as, as Lord Combermere, but it's the same person. Yeah, there's not like a cumber batch of them. No. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, so... The, the, the next reference to the Chase Vault is in his book, which is called Memoirs and Letters of Lord Cumbermere, and that was published in 1868. And the apparent source for the story was a native of the colony. And so it appears as though this native was actually this J. Anderson, Thomas Harrison Audison, the rector of the church. So, so far, the three accounts that we have are all written by the same person. Huh. Yeah. But using different, different names. Using different yes. names. So then the story's repeated. So is that sort of a directory? <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very good. <laughs> oh, there's so much wealth here for. for no, apparently so. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> this story was repeated in various books of collected folklore throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. But of course, all of these stories are getting further and further away from the alleged events, and the stories becoming embellished with each retelling. So a source that I found to be very useful was uh, a, uh, an article, an academic journal called Death's Deeds, a bilocated story. Now, I've heard this talked about in other uh, renditions of this tale, and it's said that it was written by a, an Andrew Lang, but it appears that there was a second author as well, an F.A. Paley. And so this was published in 1907 in a journal called Folklore, volume 18, number four. So it's a really good anthropological skeptical source. And uh, I think I'm probably one of the few people, if, if the, the first to have actually read this. Wow. <laughs> Other people have referred to it, but I'm not sure if they were able to get access to it, but I was through my university institution. So I was able to, to read it and Matt has read it as well. Nice. So, so Paley, thing. Paley categorizes this as folklore, I guess. Yes. Well, I just, yes I just and wouldn't... no. Well, because that would be the paleontology. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> so, yes, yes and, and no, but we'll, we'll get into that as well. Um, but, yeah, he, he refer, or the, the authors refer to a, a version of the story which is supposedly written and signed by, a, a Tom, by Thomas Audison mm. uh, immediately following the opening of the vault in 1920. So what we thought we'd do at this point is go into some of the traditional theories and explanations yeah. for the moving coffins and uh, so the uh, first do you want do you want to talk a little bit about any of these different uh publications that they you just listed one of the explanations is that the or that the first one is that the uh vault had been broken into by grave robbers 
by vandals. So we're talking about a wealthy family. Perhaps there was jewellery or clothing or other things that they might have been able to steal. And it seems like that wouldn't have really been possible because they had this marble slab there um, and that that was blocking the entry and that was very very well made and difficult to break into. I don't know if you want to chime in with any thoughts. Yeah, and it also didn't appear as if any of the coffins were actually opened and nothing was missing uh, from what we understand. We don't know how thorough, you know, things were there because supposedly the original people to see this were the... um, I think that they would have been workers, uh, cemetery workers. Some of them would have been black people. Yeah, Uh, they were, I think the first people... Slaves. The first ones were, were black people that saw this and... They, you know, were very freaked out, ran immediately to the, the church to to uh, report this, and they were promptly accused. And their, you know, uh, their pleas the, of, of, of innocence. Well. Yeah, their pleas of innocence and that the fact that their superstitions would have prevented them from actually doing any of this uh, were completely ignored. And they were very harshly punished uh, for this. But the thing that was noticed is that nothing was taken um, so the and grave I should robber. Mention this this description comes from the from Lord Cumbermere's memoirs okay, that Matt's yes. retelling now. Yeah. Yes. So that was a, another theory that enslaved people who had a vendetta against Thomas Chase and were seeking vengeance against him for his brutality that they had uh, broken into the vaults. And I was say, well, while that's possible, uh, we're also dealing with people at the time who would have been extremely superstitious. And it seems like from this, these memoirs, they were scared of the cemetery, especially at night at a time where you could have possibly broken into the vault. And it's unlikely that they would have done so. Now, with these these theories that uh, are, are being talked about right now, we're basically talking about for the entire um length of the phenomenon right we're not talking like like on the very first one they thought grave robbers mm-hmm. uh on when it came to after thomas chase was was put in there and and stuff got moved around then and they started thinking okay it was the in, enslaved people with a vendetta against thomas chase um and then you know it kind of grew as it went down the line they didn't just automatically think all these things after the first opening right um right. it did grow uh yeah, and you know, these... these ideas Yeah, and so these theories that we're talking about, I mean, this happened 200 years ago now. So these theories are over time. Yeah, and so but they're starting out with, like, they're going with the mundane to begin with. They're going with the non-supernatural. Which is is great. Yeah. Yeah, well, the thing is, is it's much like any horror movie or a story that someone wants you to believe. Oh, Mm -hmm. I was very skeptical at first, at first. and then suddenly. <laughs> yeah. um, so in some senses, I love the fact that they started out thinking skeptically. Or is that just a device to get us to believe more in the supernatural side of it later? Yeah, and these memoirs of Lord Cumbermere come across as being very skeptical too and looking for natural explanations. But yes. the people uh, and, and people living on the island started to think that maybe ghosts were involved, poltergeists, and there are no specific stories that I've come across about that, but I think the the version where we hear about the sound coming from the vault is making it seem like maybe there were 
ghosts in, in, in the vault or poltergeists or uh, something trapped inside. So that became a, a common explanation at, at the time that ghosts, poltergeists, something was uh, haunting the vault. Yeah, I mean, the you you need kind of a poltergeist to move stuff around and make a mess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, meaning like it's not – people aren't seeing like ghosts of little girls standing outside or lights. They're they're seeing these – something's moved around. That Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just more poltergeist-like uh, in its description. That exactly. It's being moved around, but there's no – no apparitions or materializations of any of the, the people who were buried in there. Although, to be fair, most poltergeists aren't associated with cemeteries. They're they're associated with people's houses, you know, so. That... And that's, yeah, why it's an interesting, yeah. uh, it's different in that regard. Yeah. And so this story did capture the imagination of a lot of famous people. So you mentioned Sir Arthur Conan Doyle earlier, and one of his theories was that the movement of the coffins was caused by residual energy from the spirits within the vault. Yeah, and I thought it was really funny. He calls it effluvia. It's like that's such a, I, you don't hear that word very often. <laughs> so, no. Yeah, I. Thank I, goodness. <laughs> in reading about uh, insulting language, I've heard about bodily effluvia a lot, so I've come across the term before. Yeah, I, I play. Like uh, I don't play a lot of video games, but I, I was playing this uh, uh, this game called Vermintide, which is based on the world of uh, the Warhammer kind of universe and they have a villain you fight in there who says a fluvia i'll throw a sound bite in there for that because it's it's very, it's it's, okay. it's it's like you're it's a really tough fight and he keeps going a fluvia <laughs> it's a very old-fashioned term. yeah so that's why it struck me honestly so effluvia. so then there was an author by the name of george hunt and he theorized that volatile gases were coming from the decomposing bodies and that's what uh, moved them about but i think this doesn't seem to be happening with other vaults. So yeah, no, that's are there, mm, no, yeah. <laughs> are are there other vaults in the cemetery? Yes, there are, and of course there are vaults around the world, and we don't typically hear of this kind of thing happening. I mean, because of I mean, absolutely, gases. corpses have gases, but uh, we. <laughs> I'm just imagining the, the the coffin sort of tooting around. <laughs> the farting song let go of a balloon in Barbados yeah exactly it's like no yeah quite a visual yeah I mean absolutely bodies do release gases but that's just unlikely so yeah to that extent the thing about lead you know lead lined coffins is that they are fairly airtight yeah and the the effect that has on the body is a little bit more of a say a liquefaction um and, and uh, so it's pretty gruesome. Now, there have been cases of, uh, say, a, a coffin kind of exploding open from the gases. Yeah. Uh, but not floating around and, you know, Being knocking things over. And, you know, yeah, and, and, and I can slap a label on this, but, I mean, we don't really talk about tophonomy enough on the show. I mean, like, <laughs> we really don't. Not compared to how often it comes up in our research. But, I mean, like. We should they, do an episode on it. I'm we, sure we can find uh, an expert. God, I wish we could. I, I tried a lot back when we first started. I, anyway, yeah, let's do let's do try to find it because I, things like grave wax and there's so many things that go on uh, to the bodies that that hmm. absolutely, as we know, uh, relate to vampire lore and all sorts of yeah. things. So yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, I do, yeah, I do think it's interesting that there isn't any vampire lore that's attached to this particular story. So then we start looking at more natural causes 
Uh, so one theory that's often positive is the idea that flooding took place. And uh, that's the most popular. Did you just say one idea was floated? Did you say that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, You're so still in my job. Matt, but <laughs> Matt did some research into into some of the natural hazards which take place in, in Barbados. So you've got things like lightning and landslips and hurricanes and seismic activity. And that's an interesting thing is, is, you know, when it comes to seismic activity, well, we can kind of let, let's talk about the flooding, I guess, first um, with the flooding. You do have, uh, you know, this is on an island, so there's water around. Mm. Uh, it's going to rise and fall. Mm-hmm. You've got coral. The island is made of coral. Um, so you might think, oh, OK, well, you know, there's uh, you've got this porous rock uh, that could certainly be an issue. Problem with that idea is the fact that this uh, the porous rock would actually work against the flooding idea right off the top because this is on top of a hill, basically. This is a, about 100 feet or 1,000 feet, I can't remember now, of, of elevation that we're feet. dealing with. So, yeah. Um, so it's not, you know, the the ocean, would, you know, the tides would really have to rise a lot for it, it, it would, to fill this up. It'd be too much of a coral hassle. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you'd be you'd be finding this taking place with other vaults on the property as well. Right, right, exactly. Exactly. But but something else that, you know, could make it a potential is the fact that underneath uh, here in Barbados it's very huge for them to have a ton of aquifers and underground rivers. Mm-hmm. And that's a big source of their fresh water. Um, so with it being such an interesting network underneath, it's hard to say what's underneath this particular, uh, vault that isn't underneath the other ones. Mm-hmm. So is it a, p- a possibility? Well, yes, it's a small one, but it's still a bigger possibility than ghosts. Hey now. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's very unlikely, but it's still bigger than ghosts. Uh, when it comes to the seismic activity, um, a lot of people are saying, oh, it has no seismic activity there in Barbados. Well, from what I found, that's not necessarily true. It's, it's uh, considered, uh, it's rated at medium for seismic activity, which is not no seismic activity. Um, oh, yeah. I remember when I lived in the Bay Area and uh, I came home uh, one day and after having a coffee or something and a couple of bottles of perfume had been knocked over and I hadn't felt an earthquake at all. I went looking up the USGS website and found out that California has about 100 uh, or even more earthquakes every single day and a lot of them we don't even feel or notice so well, I tell you the, uh, the I, ones that knock over your perfume though; those, those are easier to sense. <laughs> <laughs> that one crept up on me. <laughs> uh, so really crept uh, up on you. Jeez, let's end this now. <laughs> well, so, but, so I want to. I want to say one more thing about this. Um, this seismology issue is mm-hmm. Barbados is right on the boundary of the South American and the Caribbean plates. Right. And they are rubbing against each other all mm. the time. So while there may not be big earthquakes, there is going to be a certain amount of a grinding or a frequency that's there that the occupants of the island may not even feel. I just want to say now, that all this grinding and rubbing up is this thing got a lot sexier than I expected. Well, there's a lot of effluvia. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's this is a very effluvia-producing uh, yeah, uh, story. Yeah. So. Now, the the thing is, um, so I, I'm thinking about this. Okay, what would you need 
to make these things move. I, I gave uh, my friend Banachek a quick call. Ooh, and, okay. you know, because, you know, he's a, he's a, a, a magician. He's a conjurer. Yeah. He's a, he knows about illusions. And, and I asked um, him, how would first... you make these coffins move? I did. That's what I said. Because, you know, <laughs> one time I called him and he's like, I'm busy trying to make three elephants disappear. Yeah. Like, and and um, he, did, uh, he did invent the bullshit catch. <laughs> yeah, he did. He did. <laughs> he did. Um, more fluvia talk. Now, the thing is, he uh, he said, well, have you ever been, um, you know, had a, a plate or a glass of water or something that was a little moist on the bottom? And for some reason, it just moved across the table mm-hmm. because I have. Yeah. I've seen had that in a bar happen, or a pub. Yeah. Right. And it's usually because there's some sort of low level vibration going on from maybe air conditioning or heating or the big dishwasher in the back. Yeah, or something. It only takes a small it's amount of water. Vibration. Right. Yeah. It removes the friction and yeah. the thing will move. Well, if we're talking about something that could that this floor could be moist in this in this vault at at times, not all the time, but at times it could be moist, and having that bit of vibration would be enough to disrupt. You know, if if one coffin slides a little bit because of it, suddenly they're all falling over, mm-hmm. and you know it's not going to create this. You know, this was thrown against the wall, and this one was over here. But the thing is, is we don't actually know if any of that ever happened. You know, there, there's an implication that something happened, right? but we don't know what. So this, this is kind of a new idea now that maybe there was just enough of a, a low-level vibration that with a little bit of moisture in there and maybe even a little bit of, you know, uh, lichen or moss or something on the floor uh, that, it, that had grown because of the constant moisture in Barbados, that could have created a lack of friction. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and, and maybe the other vaults were either tight enough that things couldn't move around um, or they had a slightly different setup on the floor to where things weren't moving. But we, we can get into other reasons on why maybe things weren't yeah. reported from the other yeah. vaults as well. But yeah, uh, So yeah, the, the seismic activity earthquakes, that's kind of what I'm, I'm looking at there. So as, again, as a very yeah, small more, possibility. More plausible than, than poltergeists. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, the, I guess for, for like, there's this tendency among skeptics, I think, to look for natural explanations for phenomena that are reported. And of course, mm-hmm. you have this challenge, though, is like, well, we can find natural explanations for some of these things, but you don't know what the story might have been exaggerated. Like, you know, like, right. it's like, it's like people, I mean, we had a UFO story hit this week. And my first thought was, uh, it was the, the thing was a pilot reported something that looked like a missile flew over his plane. You know, like a, he said it was shaped like a Oh, I heard system. about that. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, yeah. I mean, we, we don't have much detail. And my first mm-hmm. thought was, well, drones, you know, those look kind of like missiles. But but then I didn't take into account things like, well, drones, you know, that we know of typically don't have the, the speed to match like a flying, you know, passenger jet. Anyway, the point is we're looking for a lot of explanations that may not even need that because there may be some right. other natural explanation or, you know, and sometimes these things didn't even happen at all. And I'm just really curious. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah. sorry. And I think we'll I think we'll talk about that uh, soon again as well. But I just wanted to bring in that final major traditional theory or explanation which keeps popping up. And this is one that Blake, I believe, you did a little bit of research into the claims of a, some kind of Masonic connection to the vaults. Yeah, I, I mean, I, we, I ran it down by yeah. Joe Nickel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that was in Fate Magazine in 1982. Yeah, that he makes mm-hmm. he, he wrote a long, long uh, two parter two parter about this. I see a lot of people quoting the art or citing the article, but 
I, I, I was extremely surprised to find out there's two parts to the article. So I don't know if everybody actually read that or they just threw down Joe's. Well, there's a lot of summaries of Joe's work in other people's work. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Joe basically says that he sees no evidence that the story of the moving coffins itself literally ever happened, but that the retellings, the printed retellings, are full of Masonic references and, and Masonic in-jokes and that sort of thing. And so, uh, like, that it's some sort of Masonic allegory um, could be, like, he sees that in in the printed versions of the story. And he comes from a literary background. I mean, I mean, remember his, his degree, if, as far as I know, is in English. He's, you know, so, so, and I know that a lot of work spent in, in when you're doing liberal arts work like that around literature to look for symbolism and, and wordplay and that sort of stuff. Um, but I just don't know what that adds to the question of how this actually happened. Did it actually happen? And, and not to demean his work. I mean, obviously he spent a lot of time on this, but and it's still, like you say, it's still around. I just don't understand. I, I, I don't, somehow it's eluding me. Maybe I. <laughs> it doesn't I don't, sew things up nicely. Like, like I mean, you're like yeah. if I made this into a like if I would put this into a paper uh, for an English journal, and it was like you know Masonic symbolism in the text of this story. That great, you know, I could absolutely make that as a paper, right? But mm -hmm. but I don't see how it contributes to. Answering the, the question, right? Yeah, sorry. That, that's what I'm trying to say without no, I, offending I agree, Joe. <laughs> and I also agree with what Matt said about a lot of the, the terminology surrounding this is, is obviously Masonic. We're talking yeah. about the structure. We're talking about buildings. And so I, I think that it could have had a literal more than a figurative meaning in these usages. Yeah, a lot of it was how people talked back then. So I, I think that it's it's not a not a big shocker that that language was used. And the Masonic um, peak, I mean, like uh, that was like at a time yeah. when like Masons were not only uh, I mean, how, they, they were way more powerful than they are now. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yes. Were, yeah. So yeah. yeah. So I think that we, there are just some discussion points and some kind of fresh angles that we can take on this. 
And uh, so I think the first point is, so what if these events didn't actually happen? Are we just repeating the folklore? And that's one thing that Matt and I found when we were doing research into this story. If you go and have a look on YouTube, it's just video after video after video with people retelling the folklore. There's no investigation or research into it. It's just retelling the stories. And we and, and it's weird because a lot of those same YouTube videos are saying solved. And yeah. they're not. And they're not. That's you know, right. So it's, it's very frustrating to, to see people just making claims based on uh, the retellings of stories, you know, mm-hmm. and they, they, they throw in their quick little opinion uh, without backing anything up. And then they say, oh, it's solved now. And I, I hate it when skeptical investigators do that. And, and it, it bothers me when, you know, anyone does that. This is uh, this is not um, you had the perfect word for it earlier, Karen, when I said this is unsolvable, but it's not. What well, it's not say? inexplicable. Yes, it's not ah. inexplicable. It's just unsolvable, uh, you know, because we weren't there. We weren't there. We don't have all of the evidence that we would need to solve it. So all we can do is posit possibilities. And I, I think we've come across some things that no one else has so far. Yeah, so again, I don't think I'm going to be able to solve this, but I think we can look at some some different angles here. And uh, so we, we do know that the stories are unverified and that the first publication of the story goes back to 1833, which is some 13 years after the events took place. So I think an important question to ask up front is, is there any evidence for the existence of these families, of the Chase family, of the Clark family, of the Goddard family, of the Brewsters, and... So in looking at the birth, death, well, and burial records, sorry. Well, and, and with that, I'm sorry. The, the, one of the things about that is that the church that's there is the fifth version of that building anyway. Uh, the, and I was the church had been destroyed, to... yeah, so many times. And, and so where does that leave the records? How reliable are they? Yeah, so previous structures had been destroyed by fire and flood and by hurricanes. Well, the king said I was daft to build a castle on the swamp, but I built it all the same just to show them. They sank into the swamp. So, I built a second one. That sank into the swamp. So I built a third one. That burned down, fell over, then sank into the swamp. But the fourth one stayed up. The, the current church is the fifth version. And apparently some of the birth, death and burial records, which were kept by the Reverend Audison, so he was the rector at the time, I think from 1803 through to 1833. And some of these records are not complete and some were apparently destroyed in a hurricane. And if you go and have a look at the Wikipedia entry, I think there's just an interesting little point which is made that in 1669, the church was destroyed by a flood, which scattered coffins and bones from the church cemetery across the beach. Wow. So that's interesting. Uh, So, yeah, again, we have these kinds of questions that, that keep coming up, that there's this big gap between the time that the vault was built and then its first use. So why is that the case? And how long had it been abandoned? So unfortunately, I don't have that information and a lot of these records have been destroyed. But we can look into the families and the family names. And I went looking through Find a Grave and couldn't find anything outside of a a Thomason Clark who had existed, but this was some 20 years after the Thomason Clark that's mentioned in the story. And this person was buried in a different cemetery, so not at the Christchurch Cemetery. So I also did a genealogical search of uh, family search and looked at the digital church records of Barbados. And yes, there was a Thomas Chase. There were quite a few Thomas Chases, actually. It was a common name 
but there are very scant references to him as a person. I really had to dig very deep to find that there was a there's a Chase Road in Christchurch, which is some evidence that a Chase family had existed there. Is there there's a Chase bar, a, sort of a kind of a Chase lounge? <laughs> <laughs> Probably somewhere. So there's a reference to him in The Wheel of a Free Man as well, whose wife and son were enslaved to a Thomas Chase. So really digging deep, and please, no puns, uh, it seems like he may have been the owner of a plantation that was formerly known as the Gibbons Plantation, about 324 acres in Christchurch that was used for sugarcane, growing sugarcane. And uh, so I think the island was known for growing tobacco as well and indigo and and other different kinds of uh, things too. So, yeah, the, the Chase family did exist and... I had a look at the actual at photographs of the actual church Christchurch book entries, which were handwritten records. They were kept by the Reverend Orderson. And so, yes, sadly, there was a Mary Anna Maria Chase who was baptized in 1807 and then died in 1808. And yes, there was a Dorcas Chase and she was about 17 years old when she hmm. died. So she was born in 1795 and died in 1812. The thing that doesn't really add up, the strange thing is, so you have the Chase family and there were various members of the family, but within this particular family, it seems like there were seven children. And the and you don't mother, hear about that. No, you don't hear about the other kids. There was a John Chase. There was another Thomas Chase. Well, they Jr. never died. That's why. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the strange thing is too, and again, I think that this could be oversights with the, the records, but his wife had been a Catherine Chase but she was born in 1743, if the records are correct, which means that she would have been in her 50s or even 60s when some of these children were born. Yeah. So incredibly unlikely. It's unlikely. So well, I, it, it, um, people did have children in later years. Well, people 50s. also had children by slaves and all kinds and of other things. That's yeah. exactly what I was going to raise. Yeah, yeah, I wonder yeah. if some of these children had been multiracial and that yeah. uh, Thomas had been the father. And the, the details are really sketchy at that point. But I, I did have my suspicions that perhaps some of them were multiracial. And yeah. and you wonder if that didn't play into these children possibly being abused and the, the stories of him being brutal and, and cruel extending to his family as well. Like it's so helpful uh, church records for this kind of work. Uh, and, and like, it's not a coincidence that we call all that sort of administrative work, clerical work. I mean, that's, it's directly related to, you know, how much of these the sort clergy. of, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. I, yes. I do find that and I, so, I, it's so helpful that and, uh, ships records, those kind of like, just it's on paper, it's trusted, you know, it's like, that's super handy, you know? It really is this really important work, and I don't think enough emphasis is just placed on, on how important it is to history. So in looking at these records, yes, there is a church record entry for Samuel Brewster. Uh, I'm not convinced that he is necessarily a family member, but he it seems like he was shot during some kind of insurrection that took place there at the time and then was moved from, uh, I think, the St. Philip Cemetery to the Christchurch Cemetery, but there's no record for an infant Brewster. And there's also no mention of anyone by the name of Goddard either. Hmm. I think this is interesting too, because with the, the Reverend Orderson's records, 
and his accounts of the story, some of them include the mention of this infant Brewster and others don't. And it's just the, there are discrepancies, his different accounts. And I think another point that needs to be mentioned too is that these online records are editable by the, the public. And I did see that some edits had been made by anonymous people last year. And you don't know if maybe some of these people, like perhaps Catherine, the mother, had been linked and this was a different Catherine or someone else who had been incorrectly linked to the family because there are just some strange discrepancies with the births and and deaths of these people. So People want these stories to be true. And so if they go on and edit things a little bit just to make sure it seems true, that's not surprising. But it's it's terrible. Yeah. So on, these online records should not be editable by the public. It should go through a process. And that's really disappointing to find out that they are editable by the public. Yeah. Anyone can sign up for one of these family search accounts and to go in and to link individuals and to change dates. And uh, it's yeah, it's a little disappointing that you can do that. From what I can find, um, you know, you see pictures of the vault online these days, and it looks like a series, you know, on the inside is a series of stones that are, you know, put put together in a, a puzzle-like fashion um, and then held together with uh, uh, cement. But at the time, supposedly there was another coating of cement over that and you know so when you have someone going there now and saying oh there's no evidence that any coffins were you know uh, smashed against the walls anywhere well that could also be explained by the fact that there's no longer that layer of cement over the stones either yeah um so it is it's hard to say you know we weren't there when it happened so looking at it now can only give you so much information if you have but, a look at church and the grounds there's a lot of weathering that has taken mm-hmm. place and certainly if we're talking about a period of over 200 years who knows what has been damaged or destroyed or even changed over that time one thing that i find interesting is okay, so barbados was a british colony and it had been since right. the 1600s so you mentioned insurrection and it's like around the time um that this is going on or the, the original events were supposed to be going on is very close to a lot of uprisings. So the British on, on their like home properties, I don't know what you want to call that, the, the United Kingdom, I guess they, mm-hmm. they, they abolished slave trade in 1807, but the colonies were allowed to continue with the slave trade uh, until 1834. So, the there was laws passed in 1826 in Barbados to sort of give additional rights to slaves, uh, but also mm-hmm. to shore up slave owner power. And so I don't know how things went after that, but I know that 1834 uh, Britain got rid of all of its uh, colonial slave trade. So okay. it's curious to me that's that's really close to the time that these first write ups are happening. I'm just wondering, it, are we missing something? Without that context, is there something that's happening in these original stories that that we're not seeing because we don't know about what was going on in the news at the time? I'm just curious about that. So, Very likely. That's a really interesting point. And it's just strange to me that there is this big gap in time mm-hmm. between the story stories occurring, the events occurring, and then the first published version of the stories. And yet there's also this 
idea that there were these versions, handwritten versions, written by Thomas Thomas Harrison Audison under different names that he had uh, apparently signed to, to confirm that these were the things that had happened and this was the order that these things had, had uh, occurred in. So uh, it, it, it is possible that there's something. Well, I, I think that there absolutely is something that we're missing here and uh, it could come in a, a number of different formats and one of those could be moral. And Matt and I were discussing that the activity allegedly began after Dorcas's coffin had been deposited into the vault. So when the first two coffins had been placed in there, nothing had happened. Uh, so in, in one story anyway, it happened when Dorcas's coffin was placed into the, the vault and then in another story it happened when the father was added to the vault. And it's curious that both deaths were rumoured to be suicides. And so around this time, suicide was seen as a sin and it was a moral outrage. And historically, those people who committed suicide often wouldn't be buried in consecrated ground, but they'd be buried at a crossroads in the belief that this would prevent a ghost from appearing. So it was a real social taboo at the time. And it was also illegal. And that's why we have that phrase that we use today, committed suicide, which is comparable to committing murder and and other similar phrases. So it was illegal. Now, I would would point out that um, the Anglican Church did eventually end their ban on uh, full Christian funerals for suicides in 2017. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, yeah. Well, and, yeah. And the thing is, 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 you know, with this whole suicide idea, um, that it's, it's more of a cautionary tale. Don't commit suicide because this is the kind of thing that can happen. Um, is well, every it, account that we've been able to find was written by the same guy, the rector. Yeah. The entire story seems to originate with the Reverend Audison, and he was a man of God. And it was right around this time, too, that uh, governments were beginning to collect statistics about suicide. And because they were collecting these stats, it gave them the perception that suicide was on the rise. Yeah, we've heard of that before. Yeah. One different angle is that the story of the moving chase coffins is some kind of cautionary tale that it's a warning against the dangers of suicide because you had supposedly these two suicides occurring within this family. But it was also around this time that people were uh, ceasing to see it as being a sin and there was more of the perception that it was somehow related to mental illness, yeah. to depression, or at the time the term used insanity. Another perspective is that uh, we've touched upon a little already, that perhaps the story is true, at least in part, but the details are an exaggeration of the actual more mundane events Mm -hmm. and we've seen different versions of the story different names different dates different details some are specific others are more vague and this is always we've talked about this many times that these are the hallmarks of an urban legend yeah and a legend that grows and changes over time yeah and also spawns copycat cases too so the in the article by lang the academic article he talks about bilocated stories, and so that's a phrase that he was using at the time uh, to to talk about similar cases that happen. Now, it seems from our research that the Chase Coffin story is the first of its kind. This is the original story, 
and that this had been transported to other places. So Lang actually talks about a number of other cases. There was a case in a place called Staunton in Suffolk, which doesn't actually exist. Mm. And it, well, we, uh, we couldn't find it under that spelling anyway. There yeah. is a Stanton in, in Suffolk, but it was reported that this case had happened in 1833, which is right around the time of the first publication of the, the Chase Coffin story. And there's another case that happened in a place called Stanford in England, in Gretford Parish. And this was first written up in 1867. So it was said that similar activity took place there and that it was hushed up out of respect for the families involved. And so it's possible, too, that if this kind of thing was taking place uh, in Christchurch Parish Cemetery in other vaults, because there were other vaults there, that this kind of thing was hushed up out of respect for the families. And certainly if there were superstitions abounding at the time and this kind of thing was happening, people might not have wanted to talk about it. But yes. the Staunton case also included a suicide. This reminds me of the Sawney <laughs> Bean, how like the same story was being reprinted with slightly changed details like by right. multiple writers. It just makes me wonder if we've got, uh, not only is it sort of folklore repeated to change, but also plagiarism. <laughs> that's right. Yes. So there, there is one yeah. more case, too, that supposedly took place in Estonia mm. in 1844. And the story is very similar, uh, and even to the point where they had scattered not fine white sand from the beaches of Barbados, but wood ash was placed on the floor instead to try to see if there were intruders coming into the I love the, the Scooby-Doo factory. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I mean, that goes back to, um, was it, I think in the uh, Apocrypha, there's the story of, I think it was Daniel, where he's, he's he, uh, he breaks out, like he, uh, he, there's supposed to be a God that will eat offerings at night. And so he like get, goes into the place and he throws down, uh, stuff on the floor so that he can like watch footprints and then when they close the door after leaving the offerings you know they come back later and open it and the food's gone but he also sees there's like footprints going into a secret door so he, it's, it's, it's it's very very old testament scooby-doo stuff i love it you know w with this bilocated story but both karen and i had uh, done an investigation um into a we'll say haunted railroad tracks okay. uh, story. Um, and, you know, it actually happened here in Colorado, Evans, Colorado, where a school bus uh, was hit by a train and killed uh, many children. Um, and, you know, so after that, the railroad tracks became haunted. And if your car were to, uh, say, stall on the tracks, uh, it would get pushed off of the tracks. Um, oddly and enough, hands. yes, yes. And, uh, you know, oddly enough, that story was transported. It's been yeah. transported to several places. So I, I like the term bilocate. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's bilocated to Utah and also to San Antonio. So I'm sure a lot of listeners will be familiar with the San Antonio railroad track story. Sure. And, it was, was, was the Colorado case based on a real crash? Yes. Yes. So okay. it happened in. Evans, a very tiny town that is near a larger town called Greeley. And I can't remember when it happened. I detail all of this in Haunting America, um, my book. And Oh, I should is... remember that because I, I do love that book. So <laughs> I do Thank remember you. I remember the photos of the of the of the scene and I think for some reason in my mind I I moved those to Texas. 
So, because I know the Texas story yeah, so well. Yeah, yeah, but the original story took place in yeah. rural Colorado, and it was covered at the time. Very sad story. It was covered by uh, one of the the major newspapers at the time. Uh, what was it? Rocky was Mountain News. Rocky Mountain News. So I don't think they're around anymore. No. But no. Yeah, there was this huge write up about it. And it's just very interesting that it's been transported to San Antonio. So we've been to both locations and the San Antonio one seems to have won out. It is the most popular version of the story, even though nothing but, actually happened and I there. Think it's, and, I think it's because of two main things. Well, three main things. One, it's a more populated area. So it's I think it's kind of easier to find, easier to get to. Uh, and, you know, you can ask someone you know, where is this place? And they'll, they'll tell you right where to go. Cause everybody knows about it. Number two, the gravity Hill aspect of it actually works. You can park your mm. car on it and put it in neutral. And, and we did this, you know, Karen and I did it. Lo and behold, our to, vehicle was pushed off of the road. Line, though. <laughs> we had to wait in line because there were about 10 cars ahead of us. This is the, the legend tripping aspect of it is really popular on weekends and evenings for kids. Sure. It's even been incorporated into the the local history. So you have all of these streets in that area that are named after children. Yes. And so the the belief is that these were the poor kids who had perished in this accident. But the reality is that those are the names of the children of the construction workers who built that residential area. Nice. So, yeah, that, that is interesting to see this kind of phenomenon that does take place. So it is very possible that the the chase story is the original and that this bilocated to these other areas in England and in Estonia. And it's also a possibility that the chase story is a bilocated story as well. Yeah, and I, I, I feel that that's probably the case. Uh, the way all this came up, you know, and, and the fact that, that, you know, several of them showed up in England is not a shocker since Lord Cumbermere, for example, He's English. That's where he's English, you know, and and of course, you know, this was an English colony. Um, So it's not a big shocker that this news would get back there. Although it is interesting that, um, and and if we have time, I want to read a little bit from the memoirs and correspondence of Field Marshal, uh, uh, the Count uh, Cumbermere. I want to read a little bit from that to give you an idea of what's actually in there. Because I read this entire, this entire book and, I must say that the purpose of this memoir was to elevate him, not to record his life. It, it wasn't, you know, actually a record of his life as much as it was to elevate him into a hero. Sort of a braggadocio. Yes, very much so. And uh, the the him going to this uh, this opening of the vault is no less spectacular than you would expect. And I wanted to read just a small portion of it and then make a, a, a point, uh, if, if you guys don't mind. Sure. Okay. So this this picks up from where he comes to uh, Barbados in or to the, the vault in 1820 for the final opening. Barbados has seldom witnessed such a gathering as that assembled in Christ Church District on that day. The towns were deserted, and thousands hastened to the scene. Every spot, every avenue, every foot of ground was crowded in and around the churchyard. The scorching rays of the sun blazed forth in tropical splendor upon the sea of living forms. Europeans and, we'll say, black people, 
um, all crowded together in their varied attires and scarcely less varied complexions upon the brow of a hill with the massive stone tombs rising here and there above them and the old church standing forth in somber relief as if a connecting link between the living and the dead made the scene altogether one which begged description while perhaps its peculiar interest was in the death-like silence that reigned over it the silence of mute anxiety and superstitious awe <laughs> okay so if that very wasn't flowery. grand enough yeah it was very grand and it was there were just everybody on the island of, Barba- of barbados knew about this vault the the word had spread now word had also spread back to england there is not a newspaper account of this of the uh, in that time period anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this was accounts. written, this account was not written by Lord Cumbermere. It was written by the rector. So was he Thomas a ghostwriter? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Rector Orderson was the one who wrote this as well. Um, so... What, what, wow! He's the, wow! The native on the island. He's got his like uh, fingerprints all over this thing, doesn't he? Yes, he seems to be the only firsthand account. He's yeah. the only firsthand account that we hear from. But so, uh, with that, we have to to wonder. Aside, drum yeah, well, we, yeah, we we can wind up with this one last uh, question or theory to raise that I think is is just very important to add to this. So. Is this vault actually the Chase Vault? So I started questioning this when I was looking at photograph after photograph of the vault and watching videos on YouTube. And, of course, a lot of people do use uh, kind of stylized pictures or pictures taken from somewhere else. So to actually look at the vault that is reputed to be the, the Chase Vault uh, it, it's very interesting in that uh, it's difficult to see the inscription of the Chase Vault actually on it. It's this very ornate, fancy old vault, and it, it's very difficult to see Chase. It's kind of carved into the top of the vault. And so I, I hate to use the term again, but did some digging uh, <laughs> into this and came across a book that's called The Monumental Inscriptions in the Churches and Churchyards of the Island of Barbados, British West Indies, and it's edited and written by uh, Veer Langford Oliver, and it was published in 1915. So it's an otherwise dull book. It's an in-depth study of epitaphs and monumental inscriptions found in cemeteries across Barbados and Jamaica and other former British colonies in the, the Caribbean at the time. And so what he did was, what Oliver did was, he actually went to all of these places and walked around the the cemeteries and made note of all of the headstones and the vaults and the inscriptions. So this is another one of those really important bookkeeping things. And so the, the relevant entry in the book reads, and this is on page 115, a large vault, now empty, which belonged to the Adams Castle estate, the property of the Waldrons, then Elliot's. But it's not mentioned here that it belonged to the Chase family. Mm. And then he says something that's very telling. 
It has no inscription. So what is this, the chase vault inscription that is inscribed into the, the top of the vault today? It seems like it was written post-1915. So he did this walking tour in 1913 to 1914. But at the time, it had no inscription and had been attributed to the Adams Castle estate, the Waldrons, the Waldrons, the Elliots, but not the Chase family. Now, then he has a section below in which he talks about the following people who were once buried therein. And he refers to all of the people that we have talked about in the folklore. So Thomasina Goddard, Mary Anna Maria, who we know did exist, Dorcas Chase, we know did exist. The Honourable Thomas Chase did exist. Uh, Samuel Brewster Ames, Sam Brewster, who did exist as well, and Thomasina Clark. Also mentions an elder sister of Thomasina Clark who was buried, who's not mentioned in any other story. But the interesting thing here is that this account of the following people who were buried in the vault, that actually comes from uh, a book by an Algernon Edward Aspinall uh, from his book West Indian Tales of Old, which was published on in 1912. So, again, that's relying on a more recent retelling of the story. This isn't from records. This isn't from uh, an account that occurred at the time. So I just think that this is quite fascinating that the vault is not attributed to the Chase family and that at this time it doesn't have an inscription and it seems to be etched really cheaply into the top of the vault. It's not ornate like the rest of the building. And it made me think about the Winchester Mystery House case and how I've done a lot of research into that. And the Brown family took over the house from Sarah Winchester when she died and they added a lot of things like doors in floors and windows in floors and um, tiny doors and um, a 13th candle in the candelabra. Uh, they added the motif 13 throughout the house. They added a lot of things to substantiate their claims about her as being crazy and to add to the, the ghost stories and the lore of the house. So I don't have any evidence for this at this point, but it seems to me like the Chase Vault inscription to attribute this vault to the Chase family uh, has been added more recently in, in modern history. So that's not to say that it wasn't owned by the Chase family at some point because they did exist. These Some of these people did exist. Uh, but it is just, it's interesting that this is someone who's actually been on the ground. Or in it. Going back to 1915 <laughs> and that they did not talk about any inscription that was, was on there, but there is an inscription today. So is this something that has been added after the fact to support the, the legend. Well, and here's another problem is we don't know if the vault that this gentleman was talking about is the vault that's always pictured. We don't know if someone put that, the chase vault inscription on something that was just an empty vault. We don't know, you know, if it's the correct vault, uh, all, all the people that, you know, and if it is the correct vault, all the people that were claimed to have been buried in it um, are not, it's not officially recorded. It's re it's based on someone else's retelling of the legend. So there's nothing official about this vault at all. 
And it's also said that the coffins were moved from the vault and they were uh, relocated throughout the cemetery. And yet there, throughout this book, there is no evidence of that. There's no evidence that uh, Thomasina Goddard was moved or the Brewsters were moved or the Chase family members were moved. There's, there's no mention of their graves anywhere else in that cemetery. It's really hard to like get down to sort of brass tacks about exactly what absolutely positively we know happened. Right. I mean, yeah. so everything's second and third generation and wow, this is, it's, but yet it's such a famous story. It's so peculiar to me. What, yeah. And I, I think what's famous is that, that particular version that's uh, folklore, which has just been retold since 1833. And uh, it, it seems like there may have been an account that had been written by Audison, but everything leads back to him. Yeah. And there, there are no records of that necessarily being the vaults. This really, really reminds me of the Bell Witch. This- I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, just. I see some similarities. Yeah. I, I mean, just in that, like, everything in the Bell Witch. It comes from the guy who wrote the book, and there's basically nothing to say any of these events ever really happened, right? Mm-hmm. But but yet everybody everybody tries to find natural explanations and all kinds of other things, but there's no evidence that anything really happened at all, right? I mean, like exactly. So mm-hmm. wow, so much so much ink, so much ink. So spilled. we do we do know that these people existed, that the Chase family existed. There was a Thomas Chase. There was a a Mary Chase, there was a Dorcas Chase. Uh, so these people did exist, but uh, it, again, the stories all come back to Audison. And you know, was this some kind of cautionary tale? Did he bilocate this story from somewhere else? Is it something that had been possibly told to him? Um, maybe it was associated with another church that he'd performed as rector for. Uh, it's a lot of questions, uh, but I think it's good to raise these questions because it means that we're just not going to say, oh, well, this was caused by flooding or, or this X, was a y, Masonic yeah. allegory. Yeah, I, I don't think that we can do that at this point. Perhaps we'll never be able to, um, but I think that these are some important questions to ask. Yeah, absolutely. It makes the mystery that much more <laughs> buried and deep. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's and I think it's great. It's it's wonderful to have a mystery that you don't have a solution to because it keeps you guessing. It keeps you trying to come up with with possibilities, and and uh, that's keeps part of the alive. reason we're into. Yeah, it's part of the reason we're into, into folklore. So, but, but yeah, but exactly. So in the end, maybe a more important question than how were the coffins moved was were they moved? Is this even the same tomb? You know, like who? Mm-hmm. Where does the story come from? What proof do we have that any of this ever happened? And and yep. and, and there, uh, there's not much there. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So don't don't mean to be disappointing to say that there's there's no answer, there's no solution. But I actually think it's more interesting that it's raised some some interesting questions. Yeah, I, I think you know when we um, look into this mystery, I mean, a lot of people. Uh, you know, focus on the the moving coffins, but uh, I think they're burying the lead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we certainly can't uh, accept where, when someone has said, "I've solved this," or "This is the explanation." There are more questions, more to be answered, 
and uh, more to research. But there may never be an end. There may never be an end. So, yeah. Correct. Yeah. True. Karen, do you want to mention at all um, the the thought of our new project that this is sort of spurred? When Matt and I were looking at YouTube and we were trying to find out more to, to scope out the area of oysters and to find out is it on a hill, is it at sea level, the, the elevation – we were trying to find where out is, more about the... Where is this vault in relationship to the church itself? Yeah, what what else is around surrounding, it? Yeah, so we were asking questions and we went looking for videos and we certainly know of people who've been to Barbados and been to the site and looked around, but they haven't really reported on these aspects. And so we thought, you know, we do a lot of travel around America, around Australia. We're always trying to look into these kinds of mysteries wouldn't it be great to actually take footage of these scenes and so that we can report on that kind of information about the, the lay of the land, um, what does it look like, what does the, the house look like in question, all of these kinds of things. So, uh, I mean, there, wherever you travel, there are, and of course we're not travelling much during the pandemic, but uh, we thought that it would be interesting to to go to these famous places and uh you know obviously Barbados is a bit of a, a pipe dream at the moment but to uh to go to various places that have claims and to 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 film them uh and to to call it uh, I can't remember what you're going to call it we're going to call it a monster trip ooh and and the whole purpose of it was going to actually document a a good you know have a good video of the surrounding areas and all the things that you know people that can't go there to give them a good lay of the land so they can get a good look at things and, and uh, visit a lot of locations wherever we can and, and, and call the, just have like a, um, another playlist on the YouTube channel and call it monster trip. Rather than just saying, Oh, we've been to these places and yeah, yeah. And it's like to, to give some evidence. Another good reason to get Matt down to uh, Coral Castle again too. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. Yep. Yep. Indeed. So anyway, this is a, a fascinating story, and even just trying to nut this open uh, doesn't make it any less fascinating. No, no, not at all. I mean, I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a deep mystery. It's one of those things that tantalizes you with, like the I've run into this all the time lately, where the internet has so many things digitized that you can search now, yet not quite enough to get you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like there's always these little gaps, and you're just like, "Oh, I got to go there." Oh, you know, yeah. or, yep. or or the the super the ones I love and are frustrating right now is the it's probably in a private collection or in a uh, a curated collection at a library, and all they have is a list of the boxes and kind of what's in them, but no nobody's ever done the work on actually cracking those boxes open and you know reading oh, and summarizing that's... what's in there. You know, so that's actually reminded me that one of these videos we saw on YouTube. Uh, did a little walk around the inside of the existing church. And there are some uh, kind of frames, uh, writings about the Chase Vault story. And one of them talks about, I think, the drawings or one of the copies of the story being kept at uh, archived in, I think, a, a library in Barbados. And these these kind of framed pictures, they're very informal and it reminded Matt and I of the uh, Myrtle's Plantation story. And when we went there and did the tour, 
and we found out that there was a diary which had been kept by the owner of the plantation. That had all kinds of juicy stuff in it. Mm. Yeah, about his an affair, an affair that he had had with uh, an au pair who'd lived in the house that fit in with all of the stories and that this was kept in the local library in um, St. Francisville. And so Matt and I went there and we spoke with the head of the library, we spoke with a number of people and no such document exists. And we think that that's a possibility with this case too, with the Chase Bolt, that uh, this document does not exist. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly being uh, pushed as if this is a real thing. And people don't go and and find out. They take, you know, the the, 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 word for it. Exactly. And and that's the thing is we kind of wanted to make some, some documentation where you didn't have to take anyone's word for it. You could see for yourself. Monster Dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard a discussion with Karen Stolzner and Matt Baxter discussing their research into the Chase Fault mystery of Barbados. Like so many mysteries, it's massively easier to find supporting and echoing tales of this tomb's ambulatory burials. But in the end, I find myself wondering if anything happened at all. Still, the story of the coffins moving about is creepy and thought-provoking, whether it's Masonic allegory, folktale, or even the least likely scenario, an actual story of coffins that move on their own. I'm reminded of psychologist Ray Hyman's categorical imperative, do not try to explain something until you're sure there's something to be explained. As much fun as it is to investigate to try to solve paranormal mysteries, we do need to go back and check to make sure something actually happened that needs explaining. With the chase faults, I'm pretty skeptical. But, like Karen and Matt said, I too would love to go to Barbados and have a look around. Which reminds me of preparing for the future. I'm getting my second COVID vac shot today, and I hope you're all able to get your vaccines too, and that soon we'll be able to return to meetups and conventions and other social interactions that still seem so far away right now. We'd love to see you someday in person, so please do take care of yourselves. In fact, I just lost a neighbor to COVID a few weeks ago, one who was so close to being able to get vaccinated. It was really heartbreaking. I used to watch her and her husband walk daily through the neighborhood, and now it's just him walking alone. Please stay safe out there. Get your shots if you're eligible. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, We now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Please check our show notes for links to more information about this story. And a reminder that Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. 
This has been a Monster House presentation.